Hey everybody, welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark. Uh, Last week I took the week off, partly because it was Holy Week, and partly just because I was kind of burnt out. Um, Especially from just internet overload. And uh, I needed some time, some downtime, after, sadly, having to cancel the coffer stove retreat. Um, I think it would be interesting to write a podcast about dealing with disappointment, especially after investing really deeply in something, um, because that's a real part of life, I think. Um, in real life, we do lose things, and pretending like we didn't really care, um, that doesn't do us any good. But anyway, maybe I'll write about that in a, on a future episode, but it was really good just to have a week to kind of rest from all of that and to try to pay a little attention to the steps that Jesus took toward the cross. Um, so today's episode is a little bit of a Holy Week reflection. Uh, really, it's something, uh, there was something I read in the Old Testament this morning, and it kind of woke up my imagination in retrospect. Um, there's a story from the prophet Elisha that struck me as this vivid show of kind of prophetic mercy. And uh, I've also been reading more Tolkien lately, uh, so some of his storytelling comes into play for good measure, of course. Um, but I do hope that you have had a wonderful Easter. Um, there's there's so much to say about Easter, but it's just incredible um, the kind of hope that we have against what would otherwise be, you know, this circumstance of just absolute despair, and now it's not. So everything is different now, <laughs> thank the Lord. Um, so, uh, but one last thing, I, I wrote and I recorded a new song for Easter. It's called Meet Me Here, and it's online now. It released uh, Sunday. It's on Spotify and iTunes and all that. Um, so I'm just going to let that song play at the end of this episode to to close out this episode. One other last thing, I'm planning my fall house concert tour. I'll be hitting the road from August 1st solidly through November 1st. I'll be traveling all over the country if you'd like to host. Or if you just want to find out more information, you can email me at matthewclarknet at gmail.com. Matthewclarknet at gmail.com. You can also visit my house concert information webpage at matthewclark.net slash houseconcerts. Um, and one more last last thing. If, you are, if you're not aware of the Cultivating Project, uh, you should definitely check it out. It's an online quarterly magazine, and the spring issue just came out this weekend, it's it's uh, there's a, a group of really amazing writers, and I get to be in there and, and submit a piece, too. So there's so much really great stuff in there. That's at uh, thecultivatingproject.com. Um, okay, thank you for being here. And here is this week's episode. It's called The Conquering Power of Mercy. Shall I kill them? Says Israel's king to the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. 
Elisha the prophet had been Elijah's servant. And when Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire, Elisha had inherited his mantle. The Hebrew culture was set up with three primary offices, prophet, priest, and king. And the king answers to the prophet. David was a king and a prophet, but even he answered to Nathan regarding Bathsheba, if you remember. After Solomon's son Rehoboam split Israel in two, Israel in the north with its capital in Samaria, and Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem, Elisha was one of the prophets in the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. In this particular story, he's been warning Israel's king about the king of Aram who's making war. Be careful not to go such and such a way. The king of Aram is planning to be there, Elisha would say. And so Israel kept eluding their enemy. This obviously frustrated the king of Aram, and he's convinced there's a mole. Israel must have some inside man in his ranks. It's like they know his very thoughts. They anticipate every move. It's the king of Aram's own men who tell him about Elisha, the prophet. So, the king sends an army to get Elisha. It's a fascinating scenario to me. One man is bent on war. He's determined to pick a fight with Israel. And this one man, God's prophet, keeps pulling the rug out from under him. Naturally, the king decided to go after Elisha, and Elisha knows just how to defeat these warmongers. These men determined to make war against God's prophet. Elisha waits for the enemy to approach. His servants are terrified. They can't figure out why the master is so calm. Elisha prays that they might see what he is seeing, and suddenly the reality of God's supernatural army becomes visible to them. They had no idea the hosts of the Lord were even there, but they were. The king of Aram's biggest and baddest are marching forward, and Elisha prays that God would blind them. They go blind. Elisha ends up leading the blind army directly into the heart of the capital city, where they are captured. No battle is engaged. No one dies. They are all captured alive in the heart of enemy territory. And Israel's king is licking his lips with delight. This is marvelous. His enemy has been delivered right to his doorstep. And he says, Shall I kill them? I can imagine him nodding his head excitedly towards Elisha as if to say, Right? Right? It's time to kill them. If I just stopped the story right there, How would you write the next few moments if it were up to you? If this were a movie and I hit pause right here, what happens next? How would you map out the trajectory of victory from this point forward? It's time to kill them, right? I often wonder what facial expression, tone of voice, and body language are going on when I read these passages. I imagine Elisha may be looking startled or incredulous, furrowing his brow as if to say, Kill them? What? Why would you kill them? Elisha's response 
is to cook the army a big dinner and send them home. And that's exactly what happens. And the raiding bands stop harassing Israel. At least they do for a time. Of course, the next paragraph picks up with more of the same. Humans doing what humans do when left to their own devices, which is to say, their own vices. But for a moment in real human history, when he had them right where he wanted them, mercy stands up and says, you could use war to end war, or you could offer kindness that might inspire a change of mind. I don't want to be naive. In any relationship, trust is not based on nothing. It's based on good information about a person's behavior. So I'm not saying that mercy and trust are the same thing. We can show mercy wisely to someone we don't trust. We can be merciful to someone knowing we would never allow them to babysit our toddler. The striking thing to me is that given a chance to strike, Elisha didn't. There are other times when it goes differently, but it seems to me that even this show of mercy is a kind of prophetic enactment. Years later, Jesus would show mercy when I would have thought he'd strike. His disciples in the events of Holy Week certainly expected him to strike. Maybe they were like Israel's eager king during Elisha's time. Shall we kill them? I can see Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus. I wonder if Peter, a career fisherman, even had any training with a sword. Is this the clumsy strike of a man jumping to conclusions about the way Jesus was going to deal with his enemies? I don't know. But when Jesus reattached Malchus's ear, I wonder if the same look of incredulity that spread across Elisha's face spread across Jesus's. A sword, Peter? Really? And then turning, here, let me see that ear. Last week, I read Humphrey Carpenter's biography of J.R.R. Tolkien. I've had it on my shelf for years, finally decided to sit down and read it. That sent me back to reread Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which I love. Tolkien believed that a well-told story, even an invented story, could both be true and make truth available. Of course, the stories of Scripture are not inventions, but realities. As Tolkien himself would say to a soon-to-be-converted-to-Christianity C.S. Lewis during a late-night conversation, Tolkien pointed out that the myths Lewis loved all drew from and point to the great myth of which the Scriptures tell, a myth which, unlike all the others, really happened. In Tolkien's own invented myth, I wonder if this same element of Elisha's mercy and Jesus' ultimate mercy crop up. In The Lord of the Rings, Sauron is not defeated finally by might or battle prowess. He is defeated by humility and mercy. If power and pride help to defeat Sauron, it is his own power and pride turned in on itself. To paraphrase Theoden, Often evil is its own undoing. Bilbo, Gandalf, and Frodo show mercy to Gollum. 
that mercy ends up being the key to Sauron's defeat. And he is defeated, not by a direct assault, but merely by the removal of the weapon he had put all of his trust in, the ring. When Sauron's weapon is judged by the fire, there is nothing left of him to endure. The pattern of mercy shows up across these stories as the true road to victory. In the true myth of Christianity, Jesus defeats sin, death, and the devil in similar fashion to Elisha's treatment of Aram's armies. He offers them a feast, his own flesh, and invites them to return, not to their old country, but home to himself. This Easter, we are witnesses to a life strangely shaped by great powers that seem to us not to be powers at all, but weaknesses. We are onlookers at a baffling scene where all we count as wisdom is upset by God's apparent foolishness at the crucifixion. We're all ready to swing our swords. Shall we kill them? Pause the movie. What happens next? Bye. 
Thousand 